building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. Jordan Rayner, man, you're in Tampa. I feel sorry for you because you're in the second best place. I'm, I'm up here <laughs> in Colorado Springs. So, man, you got a great podcast called Call to Mastery, and you've got an awesome new book out about how to manage your time. And so I'm just excited to have you uh, virtual. One of these days we'll get you out here. In fact, I think you want to. You said you want to bring your kids out here to see what snow looks like. So I do. When you I do. get out here, we'll do this in person. Let's do it. No, it's a, it's a joy to be with you virtually. It'll be a much greater joy when we're there together in person. I can't wait. You wrote a book that I think has one of the most important concepts for people today, which is about how to manage your time in a Christ-like fashion, because I mean, everybody needs this. It's not just businessmen who desperately need it, but um, I, I don't know that I've had more of my time wasted than when I got into the ministry. And it's not there's all these these things coming at you constantly, these urgent needs. And some of them are great and some of them are not. But I mean, the calls I get I mean, a few days ago, I just had someone call me and say, look, I've been talking to all the churches in Korea and we need to get to your Korea in the next week, couple of weeks. Can you can you just come? It's like, uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the need is great. Don't have time to just run off to Korea for a few weeks. Um so it, it happens. I mean, you see this with men, with pastors, their time just getting sucked away, business guys. And one of the most important things we have to learn for successful people is how do I manage my time? And we look at Jesus Christ, who was never in a hurry, who knew that he was going to die soon, who had a limited time to save the world, and yet regularly took time to get away, be with his father, be alone, contemplate what was going on. And you make that point in your book about how important it is for us to manage our time of prayer to try things properly. So, man, take it away. I want you to do almost all the talking on this because your message is profound. Well, you've already teed up what I think makes this book unique. Uh, Ken, I've read, listen, there's 60,000 books in the time management category on Amazon. This is silly. Is right? most cluttered, <laughs> yeah, it's the most cluttered category of books in the world. I've read all the perennial sellers, but I've never read a single one that accounted for how the author of time managed his time when he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, Christian or not. I think it's pretty hard to dispute that Jesus was the most productive person who ever walked the earth. And yet we don't read the gospels for what they are, biographies of how he lived his life, right? Uh, you, you already pointed out, Jesus didn't have a to-do list or a calendar but you do see him in the Gospels fighting for solitude, right? Seeking to be busy without being hurried, uh, trying to fight off distractions uh, at work so that he could focus on his essential mission, which was preaching the Gospel in word and deed. And so what I've done in this book is say, okay, if Jesus is the most productive person who's ever walked the earth, he's God, what do the Gospels have to say about that? And so I've drawn out these seven timeless time management principles from the life of Christ, and then map them to more than 30 practices to help us really practically roll up our sleeves and walk like Jesus walked in our modern context. Yeah. So he had, he came here to change the world and he only needed three years to do it. You know, I mean, he spent 30 years getting ready, three years. Okay, done. 
um, let me change the entire world. And how did he change the world? He empowered 12 men and said, now go do it. And I think that says quite a bit because um, you know, my uncle was a captain on the LAPD. And um, I remember walking into his office one time. I was on my way when I was a cop in L.A. I was on my way to 77th Station to work, and he was the commanding officer of Newton Division. So I stopped in Newton Division, walk into his office. You know, his, his secretary lets me in. And he's sitting there with his feet up on his desk with that back in the day, you know, this is 1989, 1990. That little TV had the screen like this big. It was like this deep, you know black and white sitting on his desk and he looks at me and goes, Hey, and, uh, I'm like, well, you're hard at work. Are you? And he <laughs> said, sit down. Let me tell you something, Kenny. He said, when you're the man in charge, the busier you are, the worst leader you are. I thought, he said, this place should run completely efficiently without me being here. I'm here for two reasons in case there's a catastrophe and to remind people of what the vision is period. And I was like, I've never forgotten that in my style of leadership. If you are the CEO, if you're busy all the time, then you're a crummy leader because you're not empowering your people. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He was pretty not busy, and he spent most of his time training the 12 men on how to go change the world. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus lived this full life, right? Uh, he worked a lot of hours. There's one instance in which his family says that he's out of his mind because he's working so much, but he never did so in a way where he was over busy, where he was frantic and anxious and angry at the people in his life because he just had to get from one thing to the next, right? And man, isn't that what we all want, right? To live full lives, to be productive without crossing over to that enemy territory of hurry. I think that's what we all want. And I think we see it modeled beautifully in the life of Christ. So you've got a lot of stuff in, in the book that's very rich, but I do I want to take us a, a side road from Jesus and go to C.S. Lewis because um, everyone loves C.S. Lewis, right? He's like this incredible beacon of, of wisdom. You know, this Oxford professor who could say things in a way that um, the common person could understand him. But most people don't know what you put in your book. You outed the dude, man. I totally um, outed the dude. You, you, you. I mean, it. This is it's what the seculars use. But but C.S. Lewis has what was probably a very scandalous affair, and you use that in your book as an example. So tell us how C.S. Lewis's affair helps us learn how to manage time. Yeah. So Lewis was a. A lot of people know Lewis's work. Very people know his story, right, about his life. He was a he was a crazy eccentric guy. He drank beer in, at ten thirty in the morning with Tolkien, right? He made up his own words in Scrabble. Uh, but the most eccentric <laughs> chapter is this relationship with this woman named Janie Moore. So during World War One, uh, Lewis developed a friendship with Moore's son, this guy named Patty. And before they went off to war, Jack, C.S. Lewis, and Patty said, all right, if either of us die on the battlefield, the other's going to take care of the other's family, right? So Patty gets killed in France. Lewis makes good on his promise. Uh, he goes back to England, moves in with Patty's mom, Janie Moore, whom Lewis called Mrs. Moore, and her daughter, Maureen. And yeah, this is an odd relationship with Mrs. Moore, right? It's clear that Mrs. Moore was filling a void in Lewis's life, uh, kind of left there by the death of his own mother. Uh, and a lot of his biographies suggest that there was an affair here, right? That sounds, he was it sounds like it. Yeah, it absolutely sounds like it. But listen, romantic speculation aside, here's the point that I, that I use the story to make in the book. 
Mrs. Moore, the relationship between Lewis and Mrs. Moore was great for a while. But over time, she became this incredibly painful thorn in his side because she was constantly interrupting his work. She would interrupt him as he was writing and ask him to do these just meaningless tasks around the house. I was talking with Lewis's stepson. He's like, oh, all the time, Mrs. Moore would just like fall down, feign a fall. And then, you know, he, he would rush to her and then she'd be fine. So here's the crazy thing. After Mrs. Moore died, by the way, Lewis never complained about Mrs. Moore. He fulfilled his duty for more than 30 years to this woman, which makes me love him all the more. After she dies, Lewis published uh, 10 books in a six-year period after her death, compared to four books he published the previous six years. But here's, 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 here's the best part. They're not just any 10 books. Mere Christianity and all seven of the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. And the secret was, as his biographers have pointed out, for the very first time in Lewis's career, he had the ability to do deep work, to focus singularly on a single problem at work, a single person at a time. That's what enabled his phenomenal productivity. And I argue in the book that we got to do the same. We got to fight for depth at work and at home. So we could do our most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Right. People ask me all the time, how is it that you're so productive? How do you get so much done? I run Waterstone, run Promise Keepers, um, write books. And, I, you know, one of my answers is because I go home to a home of peace. I have a very happy marriage. Um, I used to say I have really well, you know, raised kids, but they're all adults and they're all gone now. So, but, you know, my wife and I, um, our favorite thing to do is Colorado, get the fire going. And, um, you know, I go home. If someone stole my TV, I wouldn't know it for like a year. Well, I'd know it as soon as football season started, <laughs> but other than college football, I wouldn't know. But, you know, we, we just sit there and, and read and I, and I write and it's just, just a beautiful relationship where there's no drama and she adds to my time. She doesn't take away. And I know that's not helpful for some people who are listening to this going, well, I, my marriage sucks. So thanks. You know, I can't help that. You can't help that. What are you going to do to work on that? How are you going to make that better? But um, and, and I think that connects to what we we're just talking about. You know, my, my friend, my friend, Cal Newport popularized this idea of deep work in his great book uh, by the same by the same title. But as Christians, we're called to excellence in all things, not just work. And that includes excellent relationships at home. And depth is the silver bullet for effectiveness at the office and at home. In our distracted world, uh, one of the most valuable gifts we can give to our spouses is our undivided attention and presence, right? Well, that's right. When I come downstairs, I work at home, I come downstairs at five o'clock every day on the dot, I take my cell phone, and I put it in our master bathroom. I temporarily convert it into a landline, essentially. Put it in the bathroom, out of sight, out of mind, so I can be fully focused on my wife, on my kids. And I don't touch that phone. I touch that phone for five more minutes at 7.30, and then I put my phone to bed for good. Because uh, I want to be fully present. I want to go deep with my kids and my wife. That, I think, is one of the most important things. At least for me, the lessons I had to really learn is to be in the moment. Be in the moment. Be in the moment. And and Jesus, you know, when when when... When Moses asked God his name, God says, I am. That's my name. I am. Not I always was and I ever will be. Just I am the eternal present for, for the Lord. Um, everything for God is happening now because he's outside of time. 
And for us to be eternally present, to be where we are is so viciously important when our wife is talking to us to be honed in. Um, yeah, another story that's helpful is, um, I don't think I've ever told this one before, but I stayed with the Surgeon Admiral of the Navy when I got out of the Marine Corps OCS for a week. And he spent, I was, I was not, I just turned 19. He'd smoke a pipe every day. We'd sit in the backyard in Bethesda watching the squirrels. And he would just impart wisdom to me, which I was too stupid at the time to really understand. But years later, it came back. And I remember one of the stories he told me that was so fascinating is this guy was the personal physician to President Roosevelt, uh, President Nixon, President Johnson. And he was the head of Bethesda Hospital when Reagan was brought in shot. This was 1986. And uh, I remember him saying to me, Roosevelt and Reagan were like the same person. He said, those two men, whenever anybody talked to them, he, they made them feel like the most important person in the room. It doesn't matter if that was their secretary or the secretary of state. They were engaged. They did not look at their paper. They made them feel important. He said, um, Nixon was so insecure that he, he, he found it necessary to remind you that he was president in about every 60 seconds. <laughs> and he said, Johnson was just a plain jerk. You know, yeah, but he said, when you when you grow up, you know, I'm 19. Be like Roosevelt and Reagan, be engaged, listen to somebody and never make them feel like anything's more important than them at that time. I love that. I love it. Reminds me of uh, it reminds me of Mr. Rogers. It's another story I tell in the book, Redeeming Your Time, right? Go in the opposite direction of politics. But people would report all the time when you got into Mr. Rogers presence, time stood still. He was fully Focus. He was uni present with you. There was nobody else on earth but you. And part of that was, I think Mr. Rogers understood this idea of uni presence that we can only truly focus on one important person or thing at a time. But also, I think it was Rogers' remarkable lack of hurry. Right? Uh, they the people people would call these moments with Fred Rogers Fred time. Right. Like there's just he was he was never in a hurry to go anywhere else. He was just fully focused. Man, what a winsome quality. We don't use that word enough, in my opinion. Just attractive. Like people want to be around those people because it's Christ-like. Jesus was fully focused, right, on the people and work uh, of his life, right? We gotta do the same if we want to redeem our time in the model of our redeemer. How would that transform our prayer life, Jordan, if we we're present in our prayer life. Whew. I um gotta be careful here because so much <laughs> of my so much of my so much of my audience, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So much of my audience has come to me through the Uversion Bible app that people have on their phones. Yeah. And I love Uversion. I love my friends there. They're great people, but I haven't read the Bible on my phone in a long time. You know why? Because I can't be fully present with the word and with my Lord in prayer when I'm consuming scripture on a digital device that's one tap away from text messages and social media, right? Like, um, I don't know, man. I, I'm not analog with most things, Ken, but I'm analog when it comes to God's word. That first hour of my day from 5 to 6 a.m. is my phone is away. It's still in my master bathroom. It's still in bed from 5 to 7.30 a.m. And I could just focus fully on the word from five to six and then my kids from six to seven 30 when I go touch my phone for the first time of the day. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I don't know how we can have a rich prayer life without um, those distractions competing for our attention. There's, there's some really good data out now 
that shows that just having your smartphone in the same room as you, not even on your person, makes you significantly more anxious, right? And thus, applying this to prayer blocks your ability to be fully present with your heavenly father. So get the phone in a different room, close the door uh, as Daniel did, right? Hold yourself away and spend time truly alone and in solitude with your heavenly father. That's good advice, man. I uh, I got one of these Garmin watches. My my yeah. wife bought me for the, this for uh, I don't know my Father's Day or my birthday or something. It's actually pretty cool because it allows me to ditch the phone, and then if the phone's ringing, um, I can look down and see who's calling. Um, but other than that, that way I can have the phone away from me, and like people are like, "Well, what if I get an important call?" Well, I'll know, and I don't have to have that thing continue on in my face. So it's kind of nice to have. That's just like if my wife is out or somewhere, I'm like, okay, I'm not taking calls. I'm working on my book from anybody else. But at least if it's her, I'll know that I can go get exactly. my phone. There you go. It's a great practice. On the Bible, I find, I'm, I'm with you. I like a Bible where I have my pen and my highlighter and I can just write notes and read and pray while I do that. But the U version I do find is useful, especially like on airplanes oh, that's and great. whatnot. For different um, translations, for reading plans, I love that. It. I love yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. It's great. And uh, I'll go on and like, I like the NET version uh, has all the different notes in it of, of translational problems. So I tend to write, read the HCSB, um, but then I can kind of go to my, I'll have my Bible, but then if I like, hmm, I wonder what the NET says about this translate, mm -hmm. that word. That's cool. and so that's nice, but so I'm with you on that, but I'm just kissing the YouTube version people's butts a little bit here. You threw them under the bus. <laughs> and think, I still love you guys. <laughs> I love them too. I love them too. So you talk about, and I think this is a really, really good point. You 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 compare uh, the the waves of the world against us. In fact, I'll, I'll put this. I remember when I was building my first business, and I used to have these nightmares almost every night because I was a surfer. I was in San Diego, and I would surf almost every day. And I would have these nightmares of these giant forty foot wave just coming and just enveloping me and trying me trying to get away from the wave, which clearly was the stress of the world just crushing me and and it was my subconscious or maybe the lord talking to me through a dream saying you're too busy and you kind of go into the story of christ in the boat and that same analogy of the waves yeah you, un unpack that a little bit for us yeah i'd love to i you know the most common phrase i hear overwhelmed busy people utter is I'm swamped. <laughs> You're probably sitting there laughing right now back. Oh yeah, I said that like this morning. And I love that Luke uses this word uh, in Luke chapter eight, right? It's the familiar story of Jesus out on the boat with the disciples. The storm comes down. Luke 8, 22 and 23 says that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. And of course we know the rest of the story. Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves and all is calm. And I use this story in the introduction of my book because it perfectly illustrates the core premise of redeeming your time. Namely, that the solution to the disciples being swamped by the wind and the waves, the solution to you, Ken, being swamped by waves when you're surfing, is the exact same solution to our being swamped by our to-do lists and hurried schedules. The solution is the God-man sleeping in the boat, right? In two ways. And we've already touched on the first one. Jesus shows us how God would have managed his time. How arrogant of us not to look at the gospel biographies to learn how we can redeem our time in the model of our redeemer. But the second way that we've yet to touch on, that I think is really important, 
is that Jesus offers us peace before we do a single thing. Again, look at the disciples in the swamp boat. They didn't do anything. They couldn't do anything to calm the chaos of that storm. And I would argue that in an ultimate sense, neither can we. You know, every time management book I've ever read says that, uh, you know, the path to peace is following the time management guru's system, right? It's like, hey, you're feeling swamped, do exercises X, Y, and Z, and then you will find peace. As a Christ follower, I believe we can start with what I call grace-based productivity. This idea that through Christ, I already have peace with God, as Paul says in Romans 5.1, regardless of what I do. Now, I do time management exercises, but I don't do them to get peace. I do them in response to the peace that I've already been given. I'll, I'll share one quick story and then we can wrap this up. But um, every night when I put my kids to bed, I got three young daughters, seven, five, and almost two. Last thing I tell them, say, hey, kids, you know, daddy loves you no matter how many bad things you do. They say, yeah. I was like, you know, I also love you no matter how many good things you do. And they say, yeah. I say, who else loves you like that? And they say, Jesus. Or, or my theological stickler, Kate, says, God the Father. God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit like a good Catholic. We're not Catholic for the record, but uh, I guess Kate is. Uh, but no, listen, like <laughs> we've got to hear the same thing spoken over our productivity and our work. We are ambitious people. We got to hear that the Heavenly Father loves us regardless of how many good things we do, regardless of how productive or unproductive we are. That is the foundation of our peace. And ironically, in my experience, when you really grasp that at a deeper level, that rest is paradoxically the thing that makes you even more ambitious for your work, right? Because working to earn somebody's favor is exhausting, right? But when you're working in response to unconditional, unmerited favor, that's intoxicating, right? You just can't stop. It's addicting. So talking to Jordan Rayner about um, how to manage your time, especially in a Christ-like way and Jordan doesn't realize yet that he has three daughters that are five years apart. So when they hit puberty, this all goes out the window because <laughs> you, you will just be on this carousel of drama that. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> and then they'll go to college and you'll start writing massive checks, but at least you'll have peace and they'll grow out of it. And then they'll become your wife's best friends. But until then, go. man, dude, I'm telling you from 12 Buckle to 18, up. oh, just hold the phone, baby. <laughs> I'll have you on speed dial, Ken. I'll just be calling you up like, what do I do? What do I do? Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. Struggling to balance work and time with your kids? Parenting teenagers? 
What about having tough conversations about tough issues? Promise Keepers is launching a 14-day fatherhood challenge just for you. It all starts with a one-hour kickoff event live on Facebook and YouTube. Then join us on the Promise Keepers app for 14 days of encouragement and practical application. Join with other like-minded brothers for sharpening conversations and discussions that will take your fatherhood to the next level. Don't delay. Register today at promisekeepers.org slash fatherhood. That's promisekeepers.org slash fatherhood. So one of the things I teach all the time is that one of the, the, we have voices that are competing for time in our head, right? We have um, our, our own subconscious. We've got our flesh, right? Our flesh, not, not the sinful flesh, but the flesh that says, I want a pizza. You know, I've got to go to the bathroom, you know. But then we also have the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, and we have the devil. And people say, well, how, how do I know the difference? Well, there's a lot of ways um, to know the difference. One of them is that the Holy Spirit's voice is soft. Um, it's not in a hurry. It brings peace. And his voice always moves you towards humility and closeness to Christ. The devil's voice always moves you towards your ego. It always moves you towards, you know, you got to go now. It brings stress. Oh, you got to buy that car right now. Someone's going to buy it from you. You got to run down there and buy that, right? You know, it's frantic. But um, the biggest difference I, I find between the two, the, the most jarring, is that the Holy Spirit, Spirit's favorite word is wait. He's not in a hurry. The devil's favorite word is go, go, stress. You got to go now. Let's move. And um, there's a million ways they bring that about. And so the message that you're bringing is actually a very godly message. And, and people may be hearing this going, well, that, that's nice and it's very sweet. But it is a very, very important message because I find with the barrage of data coming at us now, there is a stress and a rush and a hurry. And when we stop, it's why you like an analog Bible and open up our Bible and sit and say, I'm going to be here with the Lord. And I'm going to, wow, look at that verse. I find that you talked about you version. When I'm reading a digital version of the Bible, I tend to read through it a lot faster than when I have my Bible in front of me. And so talk about that a little bit about how really managing time is one of the most godly things we can do to draw close to him, to get rid of the stress and the worry and the hurry, because that is all from the world and the devil. It is not from Jesus. Yeah. I'll say a couple of things uh, to this end. Number one, um, I think we got to recognize that time, time management isn't the secular thing. Paul says it's part of our response to the gospel. Paul spends the first four chapters of Ephesians preaching the gospel. Ephesians 5.1 reminds us of our status as, quote, dearly loved children of the king. And then, as Paul always does, you can hear him anticipating his readers' questions, saying, hey, okay, Paul, how do I respond to my status as an adopted child of God? And he answers it in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. He says, see then that you walk carefully right? Uh, redeeming the time because the days are evil, right? Mm -hmm. Tim Keller commented on this verse and said, time stewardship is a command. We are commanded as part of our response to the gospel to get to work because the kingdom is not on earth as it is in heaven yet in full, right? So time stewardship is this godly thing, right? But I want to go back and touch on uh, something you said before, just this idea that the way we do this should look far more peaceful, far more 
restful, far more quiet than the rest of the world, because that's the example we have in Christ, right? Um, the third principle in this book, I, I, I called it descent from the kingdom of noise. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the number of times it shows Jesus uh, in a lonely place or solitary place is staggering. Jesus it spent is. a phenomenal amount of time in quiet solitude. Why? To listen to his father's voice. If Jesus needed that, how much more do we? If we want to redeem our time for eternal rather than temporal purposes, we've got to develop the habit of being quiet, of being silent, of being bored, and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us in that silence. So so as we get too far into this whole havoc thing, and then it breaks down, and then we're like, well, I need some me time, right? I mean, I remember uh, a business associate of mine, we were somewhere together, he kept saying, I need me time, he kept using his name. And, and then he went out that night and picked up some gal, and he, the guy had five kids, and and said, well, I need me time. And I was trying to talk him out of it. Well, me time, is, that doesn't mean adultery. And and horrifically, it was about two weeks after the whole event that he got diagnosed with uh, MLS and, uh, and he died a horrific death. It was just terrible. But what we find is that when we don't manage our time and then we have this breakdown, then we end up with this idle time, you know, that, that old cliche, idle hands of the devil's workshop. So we go from busy, busy, busy to just kind of breaking down and that's where the devil is. He's waiting for us. He doesn't want us to be so busy all the time and stressed out so that we can be productive. He wants us to be so busy all the time so that we'll fall apart. And then when we fall apart, that's where we find addiction is right there. Wherever our weakness happens to be, man, we start drinking, um, pornography, uh, adultery, whatever it may be in, in a man, or even that sort of explosive temper. We find guys that have bad tempers and then they that pretty soon they're abusive to their wife and their kids because they feel like they're some sort of victim when in fact they're the ones that made themselves so busy that they fell apart in the first place. Mm. Yeah. It's on both sides of this, right? The devil either wants us to be hurried, extreme busyness, right? Unhealthy business or idle, right? Cause in either of those places, uh, we are easily tempted, especially when we're idle, but it's, but also when we're hurried because hurry makes us angry. Hurry makes us anxious. Hurry makes us snap at the other people in our lives. So I think it's on both sides uh, of this road, both ditches, right, that the devil can ensnare us. So the middle road, I would argue, is the Jesus-like way of embracing busyness and eliminating hurry, right? Having a full life, a productive life, but never in a way that makes us angry and anxious. We can see why the Christian walk is hard, right? Because it seems like you're walking on this nice edge and the devil's just trying to push you either way. And even in this conversation that we're talking about, just be really way too busy or don't do anything and, and be in sin. And we're like trying to stay this. It's difficult. It's, it, it's, that's why it the Bible says in Hebrews that when we die, we get to enter into God's rest. And too many Christians aren't tired because they're not about his business, but man, it's working out that salvation and walking on that nice edge. It's like the, then there's just the devil in the world is trying to push you each way, right? Totally. And we're trying which to why we need, God's Which is why we need the word and we need the local church, right? We need to be in Amen. community with other believers who are, who are holding us accountable and helping us spot when we're getting into one of those ditches. So how do we manage time in the chaos? We started off by talking about this, but you take a pastor um, 
who's just constantly at people at him. My marriage is terrible. I need help. So and so suicidal. So and so sick. Um, there's so much chaos going in on that pastor's life, and it all seems important. These people are all needy, but remembering that nobody was more needy than when Jesus was on earth because he could actually heal. You know, there were masses of people out there who needed to be healed, and Jesus was up on the mountain chilling out with his disciples, teaching them little things. How do, how do we learn how to prioritize what's so important when the constant barrage and noise of the ur- ty- the tyranny of the urgent? The tyranny of the urgent. Yeah, well said. Uh, so a couple things here. I stole that from Number somebody. One, I don't know. Yeah, you did. It's an old book title. <laughs> really old book. That's a great book. Now, listen, we got to look at Jesus' example. Jesus disappointed just about everybody, right? He said no a lot. Go to Mark chapter 1, right? He has a very busy day, uh, heals people in the synagogue, goes and heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, heals a bunch of people in that town. Everyone goes to sleep, wake up the next morning. Jesus is, of course, in a lonely place praying to the Father, right? And the disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, everybody's back. They want more healing. And he says, no. <laughs> Look at Mark. I think it's Mark 138. He says, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages to preach the gospel, for that is why I have come. Right. So Jesus said, no, that gives us license to say no to the things that are good, but non-essential to our mission. But we can't do this. We can't prioritize our yeses unless we're clear on what we're saying yes to. Right. Uh, So in the book, I offer this, uh, I I think, I think a pretty helpful visual framework for thinking about this, because we've all heard mission statements and big area audacious goals and whatever. It's hard to see how all these things work together. And so I propose this very simple image of a five story building. Even if you're driving your car right now, I'm sure you could picture this picture a hotel, your favorite hotel, it's five stories, the very top of this metaphorical building. Uh, the fifth floor is our mission in life, which I would argue as Christ followers, we don't get to define. Our mission is to glorify God, period, full stop, right? Now, how we will do that brings you to the fourth floor of this building, our individual callings. But I think God has given us a lot of freedom just to choose how we're going to best glorify him. A level down from there are long-term goals, which I would argue the bigger your goals are, it's the, the easier it's going to be for you to say uh, no to lesser things, right? The second floor are quarterly goals that allow you to make progress towards those long-term goals. And then the first four floor are those projects and actions, your tactical to-do list. And then underneath this five-floor building is the basement, right? Nobody would call it a floor. It's a five-story building. And the basement are our posteriorities, our avoid-at-all-cost list until our priorities are achieved. But in my experience, Ken, the people who have the hardest time saying no, uh, number one, haven't fully appreciated the example of Jesus. And number two, have not given themselves to a burning yes. There's nothing on their to-do list in their goals that they're like, yes, that's the thing. That's my North Star. That's what I'm fighting to protect on my calendar. Mm, That's interesting. I'm going to go a couple um, ways on that. And the first one is I, I would take it a little bit negative um, because I, I realize as we're saying that some people are using this as a justification to do nothing. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and I joke and I, I get critical sometimes of, of some of these pastors actually out there who are obsessed with time off and uh, negotiate. You know, I was just hearing somebody was negotiating with a pastor of a mega church and 
the, the contract negotiation was on how many Sundays he had to preach. And they'd finally, they settled on 28 Sundays. That's half the Jeez. year. Oh my and, uh, and it was how much money can I get to preach as few messages as possible as like a business. And I talk about this a lot you know, these pastors that have a four month sabbatical every summer. And I'm like, dude, I, I run a massive company. The idea of me getting two weeks of vacation was reluctantly like, okay, I could guess you have to take a vacation. But the idea of these pastors say, I'm so stressed out. Well, excuse me, there are people out there doing so massive things everywhere and you need to have four months every year to go run off to your lake house. So yes, we need to be about our father's business and we need to rest and manage our time. But that doesn't mean that all your time's about you. Man, I'm so glad part. you brought this up because we are swinging the pendulum way too far away from hustle culture. Don't get me wrong. Hustle and hurry are bad. We got to fight it. But this extreme sabbatical-like culture, I just don't see this exhibited in the life of Christ, right? And I think it's because he rested on a far more regular basis. He observed the Sabbath, right? He slept, right? He offered breaks to his disciples throughout the day. Jesus didn't say don't rest. In fact, there's a whole chapter uh, in this book that I wrote called Embrace Productive Rest. I think we have to recognize that rest is productive. But in the last three years, I think I've taken a total of two weeks of vacation because I don't need it. You know why? Because I enjoy the good gift of Sabbath uh, every week. And that enables me to be peacefully but wildly productive uh, the rest of the year. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you're fighting this fight, Ken. Yeah, Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so... We see, number one, that we need to be working out our salvation, which is a new idea for a lot of people. Wait a minute, I thought I was just saved and then la-di-da. Well, no. Um, each one of us has a separate mission that God's given us to accomplish. Ephesians 2.10, where God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which we prepare beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's got a mission for each one of us, and we need to walk that out. And then, you know, two, Ephesians 2.13 promises, he will work in us to will and act according to his good purpose. And so what he'll do is change our desires to be like his, to work amongst our guests. And so, you know, if someone says to me, Ken, I really think you should work in the nursery at the church. No, that's not my gifts. Um, I don't have a gift of changing diapers, right. but I, <laughs> I do have gifts of certain in certain ways, right? So we need to know who we are in Christ and then be about his business in the gifts that he gave us and, and not being distracted by what people think we should do, but understanding what God tells us we should do. I'm so glad you brought up Ephesians 2. We could just do a verse fibers study in Ephesians 2. <laughs> totally. Uh, so you you mentioned Ephesians 2.10. says we're created in Christ Jesus. So we're saved. Why? What is the purpose of our salvation? Right. For good works. And so many of us are familiar with Ephesians 2.8.9. We all yes. memorized it in Sunday school that we are saved by faith and not by works. And a lot of us stop there and say, well, I'm good. I'm waiting around until eternity. Yeah, not so much. Uh, the kingdom has not yet come in full on earth as it is in heaven. Thus, you've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, for the advancement and the revelation of the kingdom here on earth, right? And whatever, however God's equipped you to do that, that's what we're all about. That's why we're still here. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of Easter. Uh, Jesus could have brought the kingdom in full. At the resurrection is perfectly within his power, right? And in fact, that's what the disciples were expecting in Acts chapter one. Jesus had been with them for 40 days and they said, hey, is this it? 
you're going to finish your kingdom building project right now, right? And he said, no, you're going to be my witnesses, right? What he's saying is, at least in part, the kingdom is coming through us, through our work, through the Holy Spirit working through his people to do good works that bring God glory. Amen. And there's also 2 Corinthians 5.10 in the Bible, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged what we did in the body, whether good or worthless. And so that's what he, you know Matthew five or 25 is all about. The three slaves, right? Two of them invested what God gave them. He, they took the gifts God gave them and they did stuff with it and they re reaped um, a return. And the, the last person, this is, they're all before the same judgment seat before the master. So this would be all three of them Christians. We misinterpret that. The last one, yeah, man, I didn't do anything with it. I didn't want to take any risks. Maybe he was resentful. It's a story, right? It's not a real, not a true story. So it's, it's his, Jesus' example. Maybe he's mad. He only got one talent. The other guy got three. Who knows why? But I went and buried it, didn't do anything with it. And by the way, it's your fault that I didn't do anything with it. Does Jesus play around with him? Does he give him? No, he says, go into the outer darkness with the hypocrites. What's the outer darkness? I don't know. I personally think it's being thrown out of the wedding feast of the lamb and, and having to be outside looking in at all the, the great, um, you know, the apostle Paul and Jordan Rayner and, uh, Moses, you know, all having a party while you're on the outside. Cause you didn't do anything with what he gave you. We need to remember, we need to be about our father's business, but not urgently stressed out, worried because that's not our father. That's the devil. And here's the deal. I talk about this in chapter one, just outlining some theological truths about time, because listen, our, our problems with time management are rooted in something way deeper than the wrong to-do list, right? And one of one of the, the the theological truths that can give us some rest is that God doesn't need you and I to finish our to-do list. I think we get like really arrogant and think, oh, well, God's called me to this work, and so I got to finish it. Guess what? He didn't need Moses to lead his people into the promised land, so he chose Joshua. He didn't need David to build the temple, so he chose Solomon, right? If I die tomorrow and the things on my to-do list are on God's to-do list, He's going to finish them with or without me. And that enables me to rest. That enables me to approach my to-do list in, an, in, a, in a healthy, productive, but unhurried way. Because I know at the end of the day, as, as he says in Job 42, his purposes will not be thwarted, period, right? Uh, man, it's such a freeing truth. And you know, like, to put a topper on that and wrap this up, we forget that the most important thing of all the things in our life is to have an intimate relationship with the father. He wants to be our father. And so if we're sacrificing our works to our relationship with him, then we've missed the boat. And, and all we have to do is think about our own family, our own kids, right? Um, but you with your daughters, for me with my two sons and my daughter, if I tell them, go, Hey, go out and do these chores, let's get them done. The most important thing for me is that them and me have a important relationship that we're close and that we're tight. And if they did their best to do the work, great. Um, but man, if they obsess on the work so much that they don't have a relationship with me, then we've lost everything. That's well said. I, I, God has work for all of us to do, but I think he's much more interested in doing the work with us. Right. Uh, I think we can get so trapped and I'm doing this work for God when he just wants to be with us and alongside us as we do it. And as we work in the right way through him, um, then we draw closer to him. Right. Exactly. So that it's like this whole thing. Satan wants to get us out there over here. Busy, 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 busy. And boy, that's when people have their fall, isn't it? 
that's when people fall apart. Um, I was just talking to Christian this morning who had a major nervous breakdown last week. Um, there's a lot going on, but yeah. Well, that's a good conversation. Uh, it's an even better book. <laughs> um, I see it behind you. Can you grab it and kind of show it to the camera a little bit better? Yeah, so sure. Can... Yeah. So I'll see grab it. this. Uh, yeah. So this is it. So redeeming your time, seven biblical principles for being purposeful, present and wildly productive. And if I was a really good Baptist, I would add a fourth P, which would be peaceful, right? Like the, the best compliment I've seen in the early reviews of this book is this is a, a Christ-like peaceful approach to productivity that is set apart from the rest of the world. That That's, that's what me as an author wants to hear uh, about this book. Oh, that's great. It's funny. I'll, I'll finish with this one last little story. It'll offend some people, but what the heck, that's what I do. Uh, I've got this friend, Ross Mason, one of the most godly men I've ever known. Uh, he's a paraplegic, he's paralyzed from the chest down. And he was a world-class Ironman athlete, busy, busy all the time. And he was making documentaries for National Geographic. He was uh, making, uh, totally redoing the banking system in the former Soviet Union. And he was training one day, got in a bike accident, and he was locked into his pedals. And so he hit a tree, broke his neck, paralyzed him from the neck down. And he said to me, you know, I was so busy. I was so stressed out that I laid in the bed when they told me I was paralyzed and I was so filled with joy because I knew God was giving me his rest to get to know him better. And I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? You're paralyzed. Yeah, I know. But I knew that I could spend my life knowing him better. And Ross to this day is so insanely productive. But the one thing he is, is a man of great prayer. Here's the offensive part. He told me he's a, a Pentecostal and he told me that, you know, the most irritating thing is about going to church is that every time he goes to church, everybody runs around his chair wanting to put lay hands on him and pray for his healing. And he's like, I don't want to be healed. Though. I, I'm, I'm happy the way I am, you know. And I go, well, Ross, you know how to fix that problem. He's like, what? I go, just become a Baptist because then no one will pray for you. <laughs> Sad, but sometimes true. <laughs> well, thanks, brother. Would you mind uh, just praying us out? Absolutely. Father God, we believe that you've given us work to do. We believe that uh, we've been saved, not by our works, but for good works that bring you glory. God, I pray that everyone listening would care deeply about rolling up their sleeves, redeeming the time, buying up as much time as they have as you've given us. Uh, not because you need us to finish our to do us, but because you want us to partner with you in the unfolding, the cultivation of the final creation, your kingdom, God. Uh, bless us as we do this. Enable us to do this work, not just for you, but with you. King Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison.
This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.